So we begin now exploring this book that Paul wrote to the church. We know it as a letter to the Colossians. And one of the things that struck me immediately as I began to explore what Paul is writing is just how warm this introduction is. Paul writes some pretty harsh introductions to people at times in his letters. But in this one, he is warm. He is warm as he introduces himself. Of course, he introduces himself, and he introduces himself as an apostle. And he's introduced himself as that because it's likely that his qualifications were being questioned by false teachers that were around. And I wondered, is it arrogant to introduce yourself like this Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God? Because you might think initially that that is. And then I realised actually that's not arrogance to do that. What he's doing is simply articulating, saying what it is that God has called him to do. And functioning in that call. It's not arrogance, it's actually faith. To persist and do what God has called him to do. And And he needed that as he met with the different things that were going to challenge him. And it strikes me a quick question even as we begin. What's God called you to do? And do you have confidence in that? And what about when people undermine it or question it or challenge it? Because even Christians will do that at times. You're still confident. Be confident. Because it's God that calls us and sets us apart. Stand firm in that which he's calling us to do. Paul isn't arrogant. He introduces himself, and no doubt they already know who he is. This isn't actually a church he's visited. But it's a church that has, whether you would call them students or understudies or disciples, have visited, and they have established this church and this people, and they have brought back to Paul the good news about how this church is growing and developing. And what this brings for Paul is joy. And he says he is given thanks for this young church because what he has been told is that in this church is evidence of the gospel's power at work. There is fruit in this church. Fruit in the lives of the believers. That God is there and is at work. This is a people that he describes as being filled with love and faith. And Paul rejoices in that. This is a really warm introduction to this letter. He rejoices in what they already have and he encourages and tells them that he's praying for more. That they would grow in their knowledge of God. That they would walk in a manner that is, that is worthy and pleasing to God. That they would bear more fruit. That they would be able to endure the trials that would come with patience and with joy. Because this God has transferred them and qualified them to live in the kingdom of light pulling them from what it calls in the ESV a domain of darkness. There are many things 
that we could look at this morning. And shockingly, I'm going to pull three things that I want us to look at this morning. One of these things is something that really struck me from this letter. And I want to call it a shift in thinking. And what I mean by that is just briefly, whilst I've still got everyone's attention, at least I hope I've still got everyone's attention, just have a quick look around the room. Just briefly. Isn't it? First thing you might notice is it's quieter when the kids go out. You might also notice we've still got a, f- a full row of youth up the back. Praise God for that. And I'm not commenting on anyone else sitting in that row too. It's a full row of youth. But as you scan the room, there will be people that you find it easy to spend time with and other people that you might find it a little bit trickier to spend time with. There will be people whose personality types you are fine with. And there might be people here this morning that if we're going to call a spade a spade, you might think are a bit quirky or loopy. We all relate to different kinds of people. We're all comfortable around different kinds of people. There might be people here this morning that have hurt us. Might not even know they've done it. There might be people here this morning that we disagree with theologically. And again, we might know this, we might not. But in this room sits the gathered church of EBC. Minus people away for one reason or another. And with Paul, we see a man that speaks of thankfulness and joy when it comes to this church in Colossians. And I wonder, he rejoices because of the faith and love of the Colossians. And he is thankful and he prays for them with joy and thankfulness. So I wonder, as we scanned the room, do we pray for one another with joy and thankfulness? And he prays for this church with joy and thankfulness, not because it's perfect. There is no perfect church yet until Jesus Christ returns. He prays for them, not because they're perfect and without flaw. He prays with them because he's genuinely thankful and overjoyed for these believers. So when I'm speaking of a shift in perspective, what I'm speaking about is something that really struck me about this. And that is why Paul is so overjoyed when he hears about this young church. And the reason that he is so overjoyed when he hears about this young church is because these are people that are producing fruit. There is evidence of God's power at work in the lives of those that make up that church. And of course, in every single one of those lives, there would also be issues and difficulties and sin. All these different kind of things. But the first thing that Paul is focusing in on is evidence 
of God at work. And focusing in on that puts Paul in this place where he is thankful and overjoyed for these people. This is evidence that the gospel is triumphant, that lives are being transformed. And Paul rejoices in that. If I could ask us again, scan the room once more. And this is when I know who's paying attention and who's not. I would be quite confident that for the people whose faces you look upon, enthused and excited, you would be able to identify, excuse me, identify that fruit of the gospel manifest in the lives of those around us. Evidence of God at work. But I wonder, do we rejoice in that? Do we rejoice in seeing God evident in the lives of our brothers and sisters? Or do we skip this maybe fundamentally important bit and look at what we perceive as the negatives at times? And I'm asking myself this question because to be perfectly honest, when I was pondering these verses, this really struck me as a challenge. How do we view one another? And if the gospel is as vital and as sacred and as important as we think it is and say it is, then seeing it evident in one another's lives should bring great joy to our hearts, great thankfulness into us as we pray for one another. Is that what we see? And I would encourage us to see that. That when we look at one another, maybe at some of the difficulties and the histories that we've got, look for the gospel. Look for God. And give thanks for where you see it. Rejoice in where you see it. Because where you see it is where you see the divine at work. Making people like Jesus Christ. And pray it grows. Pray it grows. This is what Paul does. He remarks that he's seen it. And then asks, more Lord. More. See it from verse 9. And so from the day we've heard, we've never ceased to pray for you. Asking that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will. And in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit for every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Wouldn't that be a wonderful prayer to be praying for one another? That as we see the fruit of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of those around us, that we're praying, more Lord, fill them with more. What do we see first when we look at one another? It strikes me that the first thing Paul grasps hold of is the fruit of the gospel at work in the lives of believers. And in that he rejoices. Not be 
because these guys are sorted and perfect, but because he sees God's hand at work in this people. Look for the gospel. Look for the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work. The Bible's nice and defines these things for us. And pray for more in the lives of one another. So there's a perspective, a shift of thinking that Paul has. Maybe you have it. Maybe you don't. But try and grab it. To see it and to be thankful for it, I think, is a great place for us all all to be in. And there is hope. There is hope in these verses. This really strikes me. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And he qualifies that. Since we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints. And that's verse 3 and 4. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul sees this church. He praises this church for its love, for its faith. But he ties that with the hope that they have. That this hope that they have spurs them to faith and to love. That's got to be a pretty big hope. Pretty big hope to spur us to faith and to love. Because sometimes these are hard things to have. Let's face it, sometimes it's hard to love people. Yeah? People can make it tricky at times. Despite our best efforts, they still keep making it hard for us. It's shocking, really. Sometimes it can be difficult to have faith when you look out into our world or when you see the things going on in our lives. What hope underpins these things in our lives? Paul tells us what it should be. It should be the hope of heaven. And Ars has already told us that as well. To keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus as we run this race that God has set before us. So what are we hoping for? Now I would imagine we're hoping for many things. There'd be loads of different things we're hoping for. We might be hoping, for instance, that the sun is still shining when this service ends. Or at least I am. We might be hoping that Andy Murray finally beats Djokovic in a major final this afternoon. Yeah? We'd be hoping for jobs, for health, for family, for friends, for answered prayers, that we can get through birthday parties, for our children, for the future. There will be big hopes. And there will be small hopes. But what's the biggest? I would encourage us that it should be the hope of an eternity with our God. 
This enables us to have that kind of clarity of thinking that Hebrews speaks of, that we can keep our eyes fixed firmly on the offer and perfecter of our faith. What are we hoping for? There will be a multitude of different hopes. A multitude of different hopes. We are reminded in these verses of this experience that every Christian is given. Now I think all of us would know the danger of sin. It is around us. It entangles us. It is a bit of a problem. And that humanity without God isn't able to resolve that problem. Yet, God acted through Jesus Christ. Came down. Endured the cross. Rose again confirming that this new life was open to all. For all who have turned and placed our faith in Jesus Christ, our trust in him. This remarkable thing that he describes here in verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. This has happened to us. That this transformation of circumstances from one situation to another, has it transformed our hope as well? What is our big hope setting? Because hope is a big theme. It's a huge theme when it comes to being a human being. When hope goes, there is misery. But when hope is set in the wrong things, there can be devastation. Now we could, for instance, this is probably a little hope in the grand scheme of things, but it's a very evident example of when hope goes. So let's... And I'm going to bless the Dundee United fans in our congregation here. Let's go to the end of the season. Now, there would have been a match where at some point it was confirmed that Dundee United were going to be relegated. That was it. The hope is gone. Now, if you looked around at that point, you would see grown men crying. You would. You might find it sad. But nonetheless, this would be the situation. Because at that point, hope is gone. Now, I could go and interview a couple of people within our congregation and ask them about that experience, but I'll not do that. But this is a small illustration of when hope goes. It brings misery. But if we place our hope in the wrong things, that can bring devastation to us. There's one thing that we can confidently and certainly and absolutely place our hope in. And that is in our God. In many ways we will place hope in one another. And we should. But we know we will be let down in heart. We hope for health. And we should. But we know at some point it will inevitably fail. We hope for our children. And at times... That will be good, and other times that will bring us worries. We hope that we will be financially secure, and at times we will be, and at times that might be the biggest anxiety that we have. We hope for many things, but in one thing can we be certain, and that is if we trust Jesus Christ with our lives 
and with our souls. He's going to get us to eternity with him. This is a hope that we can build on because it is steadfast and it is certain because we have sung this morning of a faithful God. What he says he will do, he will do. So are we building on that big hope? Are we investing more of ourselves than we should be in other hopes? You know, one of the things that always strikes me is when we listen to the, 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 the videos at the persecuted church, they have this joy and this hope. And in many ways, I will stand here and say that I am envious of that. I'm not envious of their experiences. Let me be quite clear on that. But these people have a joy and a hope. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. I see that in their lives. I maybe find that a bit more difficult to see it in my own life and I'm not sure about you guys. For them, everything is ripped away and often in the most brutal ways. But somehow, they have joy because they have this hope of eternity with Jesus Christ. And it enables them sometimes to do the most remarkable and amazing things. What is our hope? There are many. But where is our eternity with our God in the midst of those many hopes? Meditate on heaven, folks. Think on it. Pray over it. Give thanks for it. Let it fill our hearts with joy. Because we're going there one day. To be with our Saviour. To spend eternity with him. So there is hope. And of course one of the most blindingly obvious things from these verses is there is fruit. Paul's desire for his church, for God's church, is that it is one that is fruitful. He rejoices where he sees it. And he prays for more. He prays that people would know God's will. And walk in a manner worthy of it. We can know God's will. We can know God's will. Because it's revealed to us in scripture. We can know God's will. As we spend time together with him. In prayer. That we walk in it. And that we are fruitful in it. And it strikes me. What is our perspective of other Christians? I'm going back to that question again. Does it enable thankfulness? Or does it remove it? Because thankfulness is a fruit. It is. It's a fruit. How thankful are we? There is one area to rejoice at God's power in our lives. And what's our hope in? 
Paul speaks of love, of joy, of faith, of patience. Pretty much lists every fruit of the Spirit in these opening verses. But he speaks of a big hope. The hope of heaven with God. All of this cultivates the kind of soil that we exist in. And that is a strange way to describe it, but let me continue nonetheless. Now, I'm no gardener. I can grow weeds. And I'm not impressed with that fact because I hate weeding. It seems so futile. You do it. If you can get the roots out, which often I can't, so I just kick them, they grow back. But with the right skill and knowledge, where weeds are, could be flowers or trees or a nice green lawn, depending on the area. The soil has to be right. Now, one of the things I'm tempted to do, apparently if you boil, get some water and fill it full of salt and put it on the weeds, it kills them. And I think this is called salt in the air for something. I read it on Google. And in many places this is frowned upon because apparently once you do this, nothing's going to grow there again. So that's not good soil. That's like destroyed soil. Basically, you've nuked the ground and nothing is going to grow there. I may still resort to that at some point. But what of us, if we look at ourselves and within our own hearts, what's in there? And is it helping us to bear fruit? The thankfulness, the joy, the knowledge of God's will. What's going on? For each of us, there is a comfort that only we ourselves and God know what's in there. But we can ask questions and we can ponder the answers. Paul wants us to celebrate one another, to be thankful for one another. Not in our perfection, but in the fact that God is here and is at work and the gospel is producing fruit. He wants us to have hope, a big hope, A hope that can help us as we endure the trials, even with patience and with joy. He wants us to be fruitful because we know our God and his will. So my encouragement to us all this morning is a simple one. If you know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at work in your heart. You could have a look in there and there'll be some stuff that is encouraging and other stuff that's not, but there's one major thing that is vitally encouraging and that is that this God who Paul says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might is at work in each and every single one of our lives as well. That same God. That same prayer. May we be strengthened 
by his glorious might. And may we produce ever more fruit as we walk according to God's will in a way that is worthy and pleasing to him. So set your eyes on God. Let his hope fill your heart and celebrate where you see the life and work of God in the midst of your brothers and sisters. What I'd like us to do now for just a couple of minutes, just before we turn to communion, is to spend a couple of minutes in silent prayer. And what I want us to do in this time of silent prayer is just to think, even of just a couple of brothers and sisters, where you see fruit in their lives, give thanks for it, and pray for more. So we're going to spend a couple of minutes. If you're feeling particularly bold, maybe go for some of these people that you might find that a little bit more difficult to spend time with. Where's the fruit? Give thanks and ask for more. So we're going to spend a couple of minutes doing that. Then I'm going to come back up. I'm going to close this time of prayer. And then I'm going to invite the stewards forward. And we're going to share communion together as a family in Jesus Christ. So let's spend some moments together in the silence of prayer. <laughs>